You don't care. So anyway, uh, good morning. My name is John. I get to serve as a pastor. I guess that's a unique problem only I face on Sundays, but here we are. I'm really glad that you're here. Again, if this is your first time, you're here supporting someone who took that step. Thank you for being here. I know it's a little odd sometimes to go to a new place and meet a bunch of people you don't know and hang out in rooms you've never been in. And I just celebrate that. I'm really grateful. My name is John. I get to serve here at Center as the pastor. Uh, And it's an exciting series that we're in. So you picked a really good one. I want to take you back to the year 2009. I don't know what you were doing in 2009, and, and what I was doing in 2009 was waiting anticip- with great anticipation to finish high school. Now, some of you were not in that season of life. Some of you weren't thinking about that season yet. Some of you weren't thinking because it was so long ago that that season had passed. But 2009 was a big year for me. I couldn't wait to escape the clutches of Caledonia High School and finally get out into the big world uh, that I'd so longed for. And so right after I graduated, just a few months later, I had the opportunity to, to spend about three weeks in Johannesburg, South Africa which was incredible. So many great things happened. But one of the most notable things is on one of our days off on, as a part of this trip, we went to a lion park. Now, I love the zoo. I love animals. I love being out in nature. So this was the perfect blend of everything I'd ever wanted, right? So we had the day off. We're driving through the South African countryside, and we finally get to this lion park. And I was met with a very long line. A big crowd, a lot of cars, like a lot of people. And I was kind of bummed because like, man, we're going to have to sit here forever. And you wait literally for sometimes hours to just do a little kind of quarter mile track through this lion park, see the lions, take your pictures, and then you're out on the other side. So this line, we get there super long. We're in this four-door small car. And I was a little bit disappointed. I was disappointed because I was so far away and I was a little bit let down because I thought of lions as like Lion King size, right? Like you think of them as just like horse-like, like just huge lions roaming through the African wilderness. That was not my experience. I got there and from where I stood in the line, these things look like glorified golden retrievers. (laughs) Nothing wrong with golden retrievers, but just saying, they're not as majestic maybe as what I'd hoped a lion would be. They actually were quite small. And they weren't cubs either. These were like full size. And I was like, we spent all this time in line and all this money to get to this. It's kind of like a letdown until we got closer and until we were the next car up. And finally, we were the car who had its turn to do that quarter mile loop and, and drive through the lion park. Now, I'm not exaggerating. The lions were about up to the, the top of our small little car that we had rented. They were way bigger than I ever anticipated, and they were way more ferocious, way more powerful. In fact, there's actually a video. I didn't take it. Someone else took it of the exact same lion park and their experience. Why don't you check this out real quick? Um, okay, Dad, he's coming to the car. You're going to have to... She. Yikes. Did you video that? Yeah, but it's not a very good one. Yikes. Holy cow, Cindy.
<laughs> Lock your car door, idiot. That's what you want to say during that video. It's crazy. Cindy, we should probably keep moving. That's my favorite line in that video. We should probably keep going. But that was the exact experience I had. Now, they didn't open the car door because I was with people who had a little bit higher IQ than Cindy and her crew, but um, we did have them locked. But it was that. It was like, oh my goodness, these things are massive. I was terrified. And that's a little bit like following Jesus from far away versus up close. Because far away, you can admire some things, you can even get some of the majesty of it, and maybe you can watch a good National Geographic documentary and kind of understand, but when he's right next to you and he's in your life and his power and presence is there, that's a very different thing. And for many of us, just like that Lion Park, faith and even our spiritual life sometimes feels like we're just waiting in line, watching God do things for other people, and not really experiencing that power and the freedom he has for ourselves. See, when you follow Jesus from far away, and you don't really see the unfiltered Jesus like we've been talking about, uh, he's nothing more than kind of a cosmic judge, a wizard, a good teacher, a great example for your kids but he's not really Lord and he can't really do much to change your actual life. That's very different. And I would even venture to say that out of my own experience, that following Jesus from far away is not worth it because you end up falling into the same traps we talked about last weekend of, of actually following religion rather than the life-giving relationship Jesus has for you and, and for me. I love what historian, theologian, early 1900s writer G.K. Chesterton says about this. This is what he writes in his book. The Christian life has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. It's not that people have encountered the real thing and decided, well, I'm out. Like this faith thing, I'm not really interested. Jesus isn't for me. It's often that we've bought into a filtered down, diluted version of at a distance God who really can't change our actual life, which begs the question, okay then, what is the real Christian life? What's being a Christian? What's following Jesus? What is that really supposed to look like? And I'm glad you asked because in Mark 3, verse 7, we're going to pick up the story that Mark is capturing of what Jesus is doing and teaching. If you got a Bible, some of this will be on the screen, some of it won't. So you're going to want to have something to follow along with. But you can pull it up on your phone as well. Mark 3, verse 7. Here's what Mark writes right after where we left off this past Sunday. Mark writes that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. This was normal. Jesus would do this. There'd be big crowds. He'd leave and get away. And a large crowd from Galilee followed. Now, when they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Now, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. Now you see, immediately, Jesus loves a crowd. He heals them, but there's a separation he's trying to, to create when he's teaching and healing. He's trying to get some peace and quiet, and as a human, I can't really blame him. Verse 10, for he had healed many. The guy with the, paral the paralyzed who got dropped through the roof, you remember that story? You remember maybe the guy with the withered hand last week? He stretches out, and Jesus heals it, restores his limb for he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to trust him, to, to touch him, to encounter him, to meet, have an experience with him. It's an incredible 
story. I, I love some of the footnotes that otherwise, if you read a passage like this, you might miss. That may feel insignificant to you. Uh, how about the fact that Mark lists a bunch of random cities that you've probably never been to? <laughs> I know I've never been to these. But as you look through, Mark is trying to communicate, hey, Jesus wasn't just popular in his hometown. He wasn't just a Nazareth boy. He wasn't just even popular in the big city. He wasn't even just popular in the region as a whole. And most of the known world at the time is what Mark is conveying. Jesus was known pretty much everywhere. His healings, his teachings, his miracles, his demon exorcisms, like all these things that no one else they had seen before do, Jesus is doing them. And word is spreading like wildfire throughout the Jewish world and even beyond that. And so what you think is that as soon as this happens, as you get this glimpse Mark is painting for you, you'd wonder, okay, what is Jesus going to do next? How's the guy going to top all the things he's done? I mean, he's feeding thousands of people. He's healing. He's, he's casting out demons. He's teaching profound truths no one's heard before. Well, this is what Jesus does next. Look in your Bibles with me at verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside, and he called to them those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed, that is called or commissioned or, or sent out, 12 that might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. I want to pause there because we could go throughout the whole book of Mark and miss this. This is critical. This is not just critical to you understanding Mark as a writer or Jesus as God. It's actually critical to your life tomorrow morning. Because how we understand what Mark writes in this verse really could change everything for you and I. It could change relationships. It could change how you view Monday morning when you show up to work. It could change the, the difficult conversation with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse. This is what Mark writes in verse 14. He appointed 12 that they might what? Be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to cast out demons, to carry the authority to overcome darkness in their world, that they might be with him. Those, if you're looking for what does it mean to be a disciple, Mark boils it down for all of us right there. To be with Jesus, to spend time in his presence, more than just kind of reading a Bible or picking up a devotional, actually having communion, a, a real relationship with God, and then it's to be sent by him. To view your workplace as a mission field, to view the business you own and the employees you have as people to be reached for the gospel, to, to view the, the trips you take, the vacations you take, not to kind of click off your Christian life, but actually to turn it up, to give you more time to spend in God's presence and rest and, and Sabbath. It, it makes a big difference. Jesus defines really what it means to be a disciple with these two qualifiers, to be with him and to be sent out by him. Now, I'm not a parent in the room, but many of you are, and I can identify with the feeling probably of being really, really proud of something your kid has done. Have you ever had the moment he scores the game-winning goal? You're like, that's my kid. Like, I was terrible at sports, but thank God my kid is. Like, I can live through that a little bit. Maybe uh, they do really, really good, and they're in all of the advanced classes in high school, and they've got like three out of four years done in college before they ever graduate. And there's a sense of, of pride and achievement that even as a parent, you feel, and I feel like if I'm Jesus's parents, Mary and Joseph, that's what I would feel. Like you're watching him heal and, and teach, fulfill prophecies that your ancestors died waiting to experience. And then look what happens in verse 20. 
Then Jesus entered a house. He's getting some food together. And again, a crowd gathers. Shocker. There's people around Jesus. So that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So this is ramping up. But look what happens next. When his family, when his family, when they heard about this, what he taught, preached, these disciples he called, the people that he healed, they went to take charge of him for they said, he is out of his mind. These are not teachers of the law, Pharisees, mean people, religious elite. These are his family members. It's like your parents saying, I don't really know what's going on in, in this kid, but they're crazy. They're insane. They've lost their mind. I've got to rip them out of the situation to kind of shake some sense into them. That's the tone of what Mark is writing about Jesus and his family, his mother, his brothers, his sisters. I mean, the people that were closest to him. Jesus' own family found themselves in the crowd, far away distant, not understanding what Jesus taught or what he was really even like. They think this guy's out of his mind. And remember a couple chapters ago, the religious elite, the leaders of, of the law, the people who upheld the religious status quo, they said, well, this guy's clearly demon possessed. He, he obviously is not really who he says he is. And they say that even later in chapter three, this guy's demon possessed. And his parents come and they're like, I don't know what is going on with Jesus. He's clearly lost his mind. He clearly has some very debilitating mental illness. We've got to get him out of here. Like even his parents don't understand. And I think both of these scenes have something to teach us about the difference between being in the crowd and being a disciple. And it's really, really simple. I just believe, and I think Mark would agree, and Jesus teaches this throughout the Gospels, that you'll never experience the freedom Jesus has for you in the crowd. You see what I'm saying? You'll never encounter the life, the richness of following Jesus when he's at a distance. Safe enough for you to kind of know he's there, but not close enough to really change anything about you. Just kind of there. He's out there. He's, I, oh yeah, I grew up with that. It's nice to kind of fall back on when I get a tough diagnosis or I, I like to fall back on that when things are really rough financially. I just kind of fall back on that. But he's always in a, at a distance. He's always far away. He's always the crowd. He's always far. It's drastically different than being a disciple, being up close, walking in step with Jesus. And here's the good news. If you find yourself in the crowd today, you're like, oh, you just described my own life. If you find yourself in that place, here's the good news. Jesus still loves the crowd. Remember, I mean, all throughout the chapters we've read thus far, Jesus heals people in the crowd. He, he feeds people in the crowd. He, he casts out the darkness and the demonic that oppresses their life for people in the crowd. But he never wants people to just stay in the crowd. He actually called people out. He, he commissioned disciples. He wanted people to follow in step with him, to be with him, and to be sent out to preach the good news of the kingdom of God and then to cast out the darkness that they encountered. What I find alarming and maybe even sobering about the gospel of Mark is that every single person Jesus healed and exercised their demons and, and taught the good news of the kingdom of God, they all died. Even Lazarus, who we'd go on to heal later on and raise from the dead, Lazarus had a second funeral. So Jesus must have come for something more than just physical healing or physical needs being met, right? 
Like there had to have been something more that Jesus wanted to accomplish. And Jesus was always moving people from that understanding into a life of discipleship. Jesus moves us from being a part of the crowd to being a disciple, from being around Jesus to being with Jesus, from, from just admiring what he does from afar, but never encountering the power of his, of his resurrection for yourself. There's a big difference. I think for many of us, we encounter those adverse situations in our life, the tough moments, and it feels like Jesus has actually abandoned us. That maybe, and we find ourselves in the crowd again. It's like, I, I thought I had this kind of figured out, but now Jesus feels far away. When your job feels meaningless tomorrow morning, Jesus is inviting you, be with me. Don't admire me from afar. Don't think I'm uninvolved. Don't feel like I've given up on you and your purpose has somehow left the room. Be with me. When you're a parent and your kids still can't read and you feel like a failure, you feel like, man, well, I've really screwed up as a parent. Even when you feel like you're in that place, Jesus is inviting you to just be with me. Spend time with me. When your mom gets the diagnosis that your entire family's prayed against, Jesus is inviting you too. Just be with me. Be with me. I can, I can handle that. But you'll never encounter that freedom that that brings in the crowd. You only encounter it with him when you're a disciple, when you're following in lockstep with, with who God has made you to be, you'll never experience the freedom God has for you in the crowd. It just won't happen. I'm really challenged by the words of Jesus that happen towards the end of this chapter. They've, they're very challenging to me. I've wrestled with them for multiple weeks trying to figure out what does this mean for me? What does this have implications for in terms of our own church? And Jesus would go on to write in, or speak in the following verses of chapter 3. We're not going to capture them all today. But he writes about the fact that he is not possessed by Satan. He's not insane. He's actually come to overcome the powers of darkness, to overcome the depression you experience, overcome the sickness that entangles your life and makes just every day difficult to live through. He's come to actually overcome those things. But from the crowd... He looks like a wizard, a cosmic judge, someone who's just doing crazy stuff. It's only in discipleship with him and, and actually walking in step with him that you find and experience that victory for yourself. Jesus says, I've actually come to bind up the strong man, the, the enemy, the force of darkness that wants to overtake your life and, and rob your joy. I've actually come to overtake him. And what happens in the end is deeply sobering for us as Christians or as someone who's even exploring faith in this room today. What happens next is the crowd starts to disperse, and it's just kind of the scene where it's just Jesus's family members together. It's his mother and brother and sisters, and the question gets thrown out uh, because there's someone in the crowd that says, hey, don't you know your mom and brother are here? Like, do you not want to talk to them? Is that, <laughs> do you have a problem with them? What's, what's really going on? And remember, they tried to drag him out of the same environment because they thought he was insane. Jesus responds in Mark 3, verse 33, Who are my, my mother and my brothers? He asked. Verse 34, Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him. It's intimate, it's close. And he says, Here are my mother and brothers. See, for whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. 
It's the person who understands that their life actually grows and flourishes when they do what I'm asking them to do. When they live within the boundary, the good guidelines that I provide for them. When they understand that being a disciple is not just about a label that you stick on to your Facebook page or you maybe write in a survey or you write on a resume. It's none of those things. It's actually, are you doing my will? Are you spending time with me? And are you allowing me to send you out to do what I'm asking you to do, to live out the kingdom of God? He radically redefines family because maybe your family's really messed up. This is hope for you. Maybe your family has some incredible brokenness. Maybe this last year you've lost someone who's dear to you and your family just doesn't feel the same. Jesus says, I understand that. And my invitation to you is, you get to be with me. And the only prerequisite is, do you want to do what I'm asking you to do? Will you live within the good boundaries I've set for you? But when you're in the crowd, you're just interested in the perks. You're just interested in what I can do for you, but you don't have a real meaningful relationship with me. I don't know if your kids love toys, but I stumbled across this toy last week and I couldn't help but bring it. This is the deluxe Miracle Jesus action figure. Here's a picture right here. I kind of Vanna White this for you for one second, okay? So feeds 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. Turns water into wine. I mean, this thing, and it even comes with like a rereading of the gospel story in case you forgot, because uh, you probably aren't thinking about that when you buy this. But uh, deluxe miracle Jesus action figure, figure cautions small parts, not suitable for children under 36 months. I'm assuming that's the many loaves that come. So just in case you're wanting to buy this, parents. But like uh, some already accurately pointed out, glow in the dark hands. That's my favorite, okay? The, the moment you can hold Jesus up and like turn the lights off, and he's like, that's a, that's a cool moment. I, I won't disagree with you. But when I look around our world, and I even look at my own heart, sometimes this is what I would prefer Jesus to be. Just a nice action figure. Something that I can control, something that has glow-in-the-dark hands, something that can heal a little bit of person here, and miracle here, and provide some money here, or, or pay the rent unexpectedly here. It's, it's the action figure Jesus. This is what the Pharisees, teachers of the law, even most of the Jewish people, this is kind of what they're expecting. Someone come to just overthrow the Roman superpower, finally free them. And what Jesus offers them is the invitation, just be with me. You thought of God as far off and aloof and judgmental and, and a judge, but I've actually come to show you, I'm exactly the, the picture of what God is really like. You just have to be with me. You gotta spend time. You have to understand it's in my presence you actually encounter the freedom. Now, I'll be real honest, for me, this creates a lot of inward tension because by nature, I'm a really impatient person. I'm sure none of you can relate to that, but just pretend for a moment that you've encountered the impatience of your own life. And when I reflect on my hurried moments where I'm rushing, Maybe it's in my marriage, I just wish we were farther along or wish we were closer or uh, my house as I'm pulling drywall chunks out of my eyeball this morning. I'm like, man, I wish these projects were done. Like, I wish I was moved on. I just want to rush the process. In a broken relationship, I wish I, I don't want to go through the process of forgiveness and reconciliation and all the things I know God wants me to do. I just want it to be better. God, can you just make it better? Can you let me skip and end around all that, that hard work that you call me to do? I'm impatient. 
And by being impatient, impatience in our lives, especially when it comes to our spiritual walk with Jesus, that really is a red flag because that means I am seizing control back from God. To be impatient in a rush of process means I wanna control it. And, and newsflash, I love control. I love being the person to direct things. Uh, especially when you're sitting in a leadership position like I am of a church, that gets really, really messy sometimes. And yet every single time I find myself drifting in that way, every single time my relationships wanna drift that way, every single time I know what the right thing is, but I don't wanna do it because it's too difficult, Jesus' invitation, just be with me. We're gonna figure this out. If you're with me, it's in that withness, it's in that togetherness that you can surrender and, and know that I have your back. That you can have the difficult conversation and trust that I'm gonna make it right. You may not see the resolution. You may not experience what's on the other side of those prayers and that faith. So today, friends, where is Jesus calling you to be with him? Where, where are you rushing? Where are you forcing? Where are you keeping Jesus at a safe distance? And he's saying, I just want you to be with me. I just want to have a relationship with you. I've, I've actually laid down my life on a cross and been raised by the Father so that you could not just know the power of resurrection, but you could know the relationship that it comes with. What does it mean today for you just to be with him, to, to realize that Jesus unfiltered is not after your money. He's not after your perfection. He's not even after your perfect church attendance score, though I love when you come. <laughs> He's not after that. He's after being with you and you being with him. That is the gospel. That is the good news of the kingdom is that you, there's nothing left to fear and there's nothing left to hide. You actually can have an exposed, open relationship with the God who created you and loves you dearly. This is the gospel message. Where is Jesus calling you today to be with him, to spend time with him? to lay down the rituals of religion and to take up the easy yoke, to live in step with the Spirit, not rushing and not dragging behind, but just being with Him. For you, that may be baptism. You know, hey man, I, I know I was supposed to be in that tank. When's the next time? And just putting your name down. It could be trusting Him in an area you've not trusted Him yet. Sure, that could be money. Sure, that could be in a marriage. Sure, that could be at work. But just saying, God, I'm gonna trust that if I'm with you, you're gonna take care of me. I'm gonna be okay. My life may not get easier, but it will be profoundly more rewarding because I'm with you. I'm together. Maybe for you, that is salvation. You've never really taken that step in your life before and you're asking questions, you're on the fence. Maybe it's been decades since you've had that with type of relationship with Jesus. Maybe today is that day you just say, God, I wanna make that new. I wanna step into that. I wanna be with you. And I, I, I don't know. I, I trust God is speaking in this room. I trust that God's spirit is good and it's kind. He's leading you towards that kind of life. But friends, you have to be willing to listen and you have to be willing to act. You have to be willing to obey because you don't know what's on the other side of that. And that was the call for everybody Jesus encountered to move from the crowd to being a disciple. Because he just knew you'll never experience the freedom he has for you in the crowd. So what I'd love to do is, as we kind of close here in a few minutes, is just to pray over you. Is to pray that that kind of work would mark your life and would mark my life as we go into a new year with so much potential. 
but we could repeat the exact same year we had last year if this subtle shift doesn't take place in our hearts. So I'm just going to pray that over us right now. Would you join me? Father, I think about every person in this room and how much you love them, how much you're for them, how much their story is still unwritten in you. And Father, my prayer is the same as your prayer was, is that you would draw them close. That despite difficulties, despite temptation, despite the enemies of darkness, the, the, the people trying to push in and, and oppress their lives and turn them towards something else other than you, God, I pray that you would truly bring that freedom that only you can provide. I pray that for me today, that you just invite me back to be with you. I pray for the person who knows that that the simple difference could make an eternal impact in them. And I pray that that good work you started would be brought to completion in their heart today. That you draw us back to yourself. Because we love you. We really do. We want to know what it means to follow you. We want to know what it means to be in relationship with you. So help us, Jesus, to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.